Hey, good morning. Welcome to Kesset. How's everybody? Listen, uh, if you are new, I'm so excited that you're here. I, uh, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, we're in a series right now. We're just uh, really kind of getting into it called Tear Soup. And uh, I, think, I think it's going to be a really good series. I, I also want to let you know that uh, this morning when I woke up and I saw all the rain... I'm, I'm a rain person. I don't know how many people are, are like more into the rain than they are the sun. My wife and I are opposites in this. Uh, we are not one flesh in this area. She is, she is much more a sun person than rain person. But I woke up and I was like, it's going to be a good Sunday because the Holy Spirit is with me. So uh, I'm so happy that you came. And I also want to just say something to everybody who, who might be new that uh, this space that you're sitting in right now is a space for people to be spiritually curious. This, uh, this church is supposed to be a, a place uh, that is a, really a house of conversation. And so it, you don't have to believe in God to belong here. You're just uh, welcome as you are. And I'm excited about whatever that means for you, where you are right now. I'm excited for what I believe to be the Holy Spirit to meet you right where you are, even if it's in your doubt, your frustration. Your, uh, maybe you think this is just all ludicrous and, and that I'm just incredibly entertaining. That's fine with me as well. I don't, I don't know, but... But I know that I believe God has a story in you that is yet to be lived, and I'm so, so privileged to be just a small part of it. And so thank you very much for taking a risk to be a part. Just kind of relax. Uh, for some of you, you've been journeying with God a long time, and the fact that you're here during a series around grief is a big deal because grief is, is not a topic that's a lot of fun to talk about. I originally was going to put this topic in the fall, uh, I shared a few weeks ago that it was going to be in the fall when uh, everybody's seasonal depression hit, and it made lots of sense while we were all sad over our warm cider trying to figure out how to find joy in our lives to go to church and talk about grief. But that's not how grief works. Grief just shows up right in the midst of your vivid life. Grief just shows up right in the midst of all your plans, and oftentimes you and I end up facing something that we don't know how to deal with. And yet, according to Scripture, we're supposed to be good at this. We as Christ followers are supposed to be able to, to walk ourselves and others through this. And so my passion during this series is to give you some more tools, to give you some more space, and to allow you to, uh, to really sit with your grief and to sit with others' grief and to experience a, a lot of comfort from that space. Uh, within this series, we're going to talk about the benefits of healthy grieving uh, from a psychological standpoint. We're going to talk about why we should grieve and especially why not grieving can be incredibly damaging to you as a human being. You're going to hear from myself. You're going to hear from uh, our associate pastor, Chris Potter, who is actually doing his undergraduate work around uh, therapy and all those kinds of emotional health things. And you're going to hear from Byron Kaler, who is a trauma therapist from Milwaukee, who will be sharing, uh, really co-teaching this series with me. As a matter of fact, he'll be here next week when I host. So uh, I hope you, you come and show up. Um, along with the Bible, we are going to use another piece of material, and that's a book entitled Tear Soup. Um, this book was given to me in October of 2019 by Byron uh, when I'll, I experienced the sudden loss of my father. And I got the book, and I saw all the cartoon drawings, and I kind of I skimmed through it, and it has like a lot of fun sketches and things, and I was like, no problem, I'm type A, I'm going to push through this you know, before noon. I'm going to do my homework, I'm going to hurt a little, right? I'm going to hurt some, and then I'm going to get these tools, I'm going to apply them to my life, and I'm going to get back out there making a difference in this world. I got 
through about 10 pages, and then it was a big old nope. My grief started to swell up and grab me by the throat, which is something that grief does sometimes, and I like to breathe, and so I stopped reading the book. And it took me about, I, I want to say four or five weeks to get my way all the way through the material. And I actually ended up doing it with my family. They actually, I read this book to them. Um, and it was, <laughs> it was an experience, let me just tell you. So these books um, are, are an important part of the series. And so what's interesting about them is that uh, when we decided to call the, the series this, uh, somebody on my team, I think it was my wife or someone, said, hey, we should probably reach out to the author of this book before we just steal all his material and turn it into something for our church. And we said, oh, that's a great idea. I wonder where the book was written. And as you open up the book, it says right there in the book, Vancouver, Washington. So he definitely would have known if I would have stole it. That's for sure. That's the first thing. That's the first thing I thought of was like, good thing I didn't copyright this stuff because he would have... He would have shown up and not been happy, but we decided to do the right thing because he's from Vancouver, and uh, we sent him an email, and the, the evening after we sent him an email, uh, the author, Chuck, called me, and he called me, and I kind of shared with him the book and the meaning it meant to us and all those things, and he was so excited around what we're doing that he decided to uh, give us books at his cost, at uh, like $11.50 a book, which is about half, a little less than half. Uh, than they sell on Amazon. As a matter of fact, I'm told he bumped us in front of his usual Amazon order, which I was thankful for. I also was told just before this service that uh, between Thursday service and 9 o'clock service that I completely sold out of the boxes and boxes and boxes of books that we got. And so we text Chuck and said, could you go down to your warehouse, please, and give us many more books? <laughs> and he said... Yes, I will. So someone's driving to meet him there right now so that you, if you're interested, can, uh, can have a book at his cost after service. And so uh, final thing I want to do with this book, because I told you it takes a while for you to get through it. And my commitment, my, my ask of you is that you commit not to just try to type A, drive through it like, like me, but you actually spend time. But I figured since you're all here and you can't leave and I got a book, I'd at least read to you the first 10 pages because what are you going to do? So get ready to grieve, people. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> this is the first 10 pages of the book. It kind of gives you an idea. And uh, this is as far as I got when it started. Then from here, I'm going to talk with you about, uh, give you some kind of handlebars for how we're going to walk out the next six weeks of grief within our church. The book is called Tear Soup, A Recipe for Healing After Loss. There once was an old and somewhat wise woman whom everyone called Grandy. She just suffered a big loss in her life. Pops, her husband, suffered the same loss, but in his own way. This is the story of how Grandy faced her loss by setting out to make tear soup. For many years, the custom of making tear soup had been forgotten. As people's lives became more rushed, they found it much easier to pull soup in a can from the shelf and heat it on the stove. But several years ago, Grandy got a taste of a well-seasoned tear soup. One of her friends made it from scratch after her child had died. As soon as Grandy tasted the rich flavor of that carefully made soup, she promised herself never again to assume that quicker was better. Because of her great loss, Grandy knew this time her recipe for tear soup would call for a big pot. With a big pot, she would have plenty of room for all the memories, all the misgivings, 
all the feelings and all the tears she needed to stew in the pot over time. She put on her apron because she knew it would get messy. It seems that grief is never clean. People feel misunderstood. Feelings get hurt and wrong assumptions are made all over the place. To make matters worse, grief always takes longer to cook than anyone wants it to. And then, Grandy started to cry. At first, she sobbed. Sometimes, she wept quietly. And sometimes, when she was in a safe place where no one could hear her, she even wailed. Grandy knew she had to make much of this part of the soup alone. She learned from past experiences that most people don't like being around tears. Her friends would worry if they knew just how many tears Grandy's recipe called for this time. So, the old and somewhat wise woman reflected on her own special recipe as she looked down into the large, overflowing pot of memories. It was a task she would repeat many times during the next few months. What the book does is what it just did for all of us right now. It creates a space. Grief requires space. It's not something that can live in the peripheral. It's not something that can uh, exist in the minutia. Grief requires that we actually create space in the midst of all the other noise that our life is full of. And we sit with this thing before us that, well, the, my very first point is, that is incredibly complex. It's important that we understand as we move into a grief series that your way of grieving and my way of grieving will most likely be different. That sometimes you will come alongside people who grieve like you. Maybe they want to talk about it. Maybe they don't want to talk about it and just go fishing and that's your way. Maybe they want to be busy. Maybe they want to sleep a lot. Sometimes you'll sync up with people in your life that want to grieve like you. But most of the time, you will have this way of grieving that ties to your way of loving the thing that you lost or the thing that hurt you. This is normal, and this is very important because there is a lot of conversation around grief, and oftentimes it goes like this, oh, I heard about so-and-so and what they did to you, or oh, I heard about such-and-such and that you lost it. I bet that's really sad for you. Why aren't you more sad? Why aren't you less sad? Why aren't you more angry? Why aren't you less angry? People try to put their way of grieving on you, and I've even heard people say to one another, you're grieving wrong. And I'm just here to tell you, that's just bad Bible. It's frankly just bad human, if you really want to break it down. <laughs> it's just a bad way of loving another person to think that your way of seeing the world and understanding the world is the only way of existing in the world. This is why I love scripture so much because it's so profound how often different people who all love and follow the same God grieve and experience life differently. And so may I just say at the very beginning, you have permission to grieve however you want. Some of it is going to be beautiful. You can make a Hallmark movie after your grief. Like you're just going to look beautiful the whole time. And people are going to be attracted to it. But I would say be very careful because if you're if you're not, you could end up living for being a person who knows how to grieve than actually grieving the stuff you lost or that happened to you. Grief should be complex, deep, honest, and you. And you have permission in this space and over these next few weeks to allow that to work out 
however you need it to. There's really two kind of platforms that we're going to talk about grief in. The first one is the more obvious one. Grief can be a feeling of deep mental anguish caused by loss. This is going through something uh, sad. This is losing a loved one or a, a cherished possession. This could be going through a divorce. This could be walking out the loss of a career or reputation. This could be any kind of life-changing loss in your life. Anything that was and now isn't. And it doesn't matter, by the way, how small or how big. I like this little section in the book. We used it on the back. It has all of these different books in the logo. And it says, uh, infertility is something somebody's grieving. It has on there house fire, retirement, prized possession stolen, stillbirth, unfaithful spouse, loss of status, pet died. There's all kinds of things that cause grief at all kinds of different junctions in our life, and our job is to create space for it and to respect how we grieve and how others grieve as well. The other kind of grief is a little less talked about. This is a grief that can also be sorrow for something that someone has failed, has done, or failed to do. This is grief due to trauma or abuse or assault or a lack of care. This is grief due to something you're missing. I find a lot of people like in their mid-20s start experiencing this grief when they start seeing their parents for the adults they are. They have to have grace for themselves, but then suddenly they always realize that right around then maybe they have their own kids. Wow, the thing I need, know my kids need, I never received. Maybe it shows up and they become angry, or maybe they drink more, or maybe they laugh more, or maybe they're just distant with their parents. These are the kinds of things that we're supposed to grieve at different seasons of our life. And you don't just get through them once, it changes as you go. Because all of us are lacking something. All of us have had something taken from us. All of us have lost something. All of us have experienced all kinds of trauma. And even if you don't believe in the God I'm preaching about right now, you have to accept the fact that humanity as a whole has been grieving for the last 14 or 15 months collectively. People have been traumatized. And there's all kinds of ways different people are interacting. And if we're not careful, we'll be attracted to the people who grieve how it makes sense to us. And we'll have disdain for the people who respond to the pain in a way that bothers us. And if we're really not careful, we'll traumatize them in return. Causing just more grief and more brokenness in the chain that is our human legacy. Since my own loss, I have found that grieving works best when it's allowed to transform you. I said a moment ago that you can't just decide that you're going to grieve. You can't just A-type your way through this. You can't just go read the book, highlight all the things that are, that, that are for you, and then be like, good, I got it. Where's my A? Time for me to move on to other things. I know. I tried. I was an expert griever. You can ask my wife. No one has ever grieved as good as me. <laughs> If grieving as good as someone meant spending about two weeks hurting, washing his face, and then walking right back into work. This caused a lot of poor relational health within my marriage and my children. I had friends that came alongside me that I wasn't interested in. I made comments. My dad, as you know, if you were here and part of this, uh, was a fairly dysfunctional individual. 
He would say that himself, especially now that he's with Jesus. I don't know about you, but 11 times is just too many wives to have. (laughs) That was my father. And yet I also know that he loved me deeply, that he would always tell me, don't be like me. So then when he went and died, I was like, now I don't have a chance to learn more how to not be like you. And I was really angry. I remember telling somebody, all I want is one more dysfunctional conversation with the man so I can tell him what I think about the fact he died and left me here. This is how grief works. And through Byron and my family and others, I began to piece this story together of this father and the the trauma he experienced and the things he didn't grieve. And I began to have a heart, not just for my father, but a heart for me. And I began to be able to grieve my own loss and the spaces that I left in the lives of my children and in my wife. And I began to slowly allow grief to transform me into someone that still knows there's a lot of work to be done, but who's not quite kicking and screaming as hard. (laughs) I don't know where you're at in your grief story, but I know this, it's supposed to transform you. Chances are because most people don't want to or because most people aren't forced to, uh, you have grief that you've sort of just taken like those books, turned them inside out and stuffed them back in. You're not even really sure what's on the other side of the binder. The books are there. The information's ready. But you've never taken time to actually grieve what has happened to you, what's been taken from you. Grief is supposed to transform you. I think those of us in the room who are just spiritually curious actually in this one area have a leg up on those in the room who've been following God or been in church a long time because church does a really, really bad job of honoring people's messy grief, especially if you have an intimate relationship with God, something gets taken from you or torn from you like my father did because the first person you want to blame when those things happen is God. I know, I did it. And Christians can't stand that stuff. And yet the Bible, which is where we turn for a lot of this stuff, tells us that might not actually be such a bad idea. If you have one, you can turn to the book of Ruth. I'm going to put these verses up on the screen, so if you don't have one, you can follow along. The book of Ruth is really about a woman named Naomi. As a matter of fact, sometimes when I've taught it, I've been confused why they even call it Ruth. Because it's really more about Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, to me. It's a book that talks about this redeeming power of God and grief. It says that that Naomi is a woman that is living in a far-off land. She's a woman who is struggling to find herself because her her land that she's from, the land of Judah, the the city of Bethlehem is in a, a great a great uh, famine, and now she lives with her husband and her two uh, young adult sons in a far-off land of Moab. And she says that while she's there, kind of trying to rebuild this life in this land that she doesn't feel like she belongs, suddenly her husband dies. Somewhere along the way, her two sons marry two Moabite women. And then a few years later, each of her sons die. And so now Naomi is a woman who ran from this difficult famine to a place where there would be provision, and then her husband dies, her son dies, her son dies, and now what she's left with are these two pagan women who love her, but aren't her people. And so Naomi is grieving, you can picture this loss, being far away, not having anybody close to you, and being left with a sense of responsibility. 
It's a big part of what loss leaves behind sometimes. It's not always that I'm grieving the fact that this is gone from me. It's also what this now means about my daily life, the things I've got to think about that I never had to think about before because of what someone did to me or because of something that I lost. It says that Naomi finally comes to herself and decides, I'm going home. If I'm going to feel like this, I might as well feel like this at home. And so she sits down with her daughters, and this is what she says. It says she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law as they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So we don't know how many days into the journey, maybe four campfires in, maybe seven campfires in. It's a long journey from Moab to Bethlehem. But a week goes in, and she's grieving every day and talking with her daughter-in-laws. And then all of a sudden, this pours forth from her. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. And then she says this. This is very first level of Christian or faith-based grieving. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. This is about as deep a church grief as we allow in the church, which is, I heard this happen to you. I heard you lost this. How are you? God is good all the time. May the Lord bless you and keep you like he's blessing and keeping me. And people are like, wow, impressive. And we sit and we don't even have that many tears. This could be three campfires into our grief, seven campfires into our grief. We don't know. It could be a year into our grief where we are constantly just kind of spitting out these cliche sort of things that really we want to mean, but that deep inside we don't, but that the church has never given us permission to actually say out loud the things that are going on in our head, which frankly are things that sometimes are vulgar or things that are sometimes angry and oftentimes are things directed to our God. But Naomi, like Grandy, is a somewhat wise woman. So Naomi recognizes this isn't good for her and it's not honest and it's not authentic. And so eventually, however many campfires further, she decides to share her heart. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? She says, there is no hope in my life. You can see this. There is no hope in my story. You can see this. The things that have happened to me have disqualified me from being the person I thought I was going to be. I didn't have the dad that I wanted. I didn't have this that I thought I'd have. This left too soon. This got taken from me. This person did this to me and no one even cared. Don't you see I'm not the person that you think I am? And then she takes it just a step further. It's beautiful biblical permission for every person in this room. So I hope you listen to this somewhat wise woman. She says, would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah, the other sister, 
the other sister uh, wife, kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. The idea here is that Orpah decided that I'm going to return home. This is as far as I can travel with you, my grieving mother-in-law. And so she goes because this thing that Naomi had said is, I blame God. Do you want to know who I blame? I blame God. We went here for provision. We went here for future. And God didn't show up. This is a rare space for people to get. I've met a few people who've gotten here, a few people who felt authentic and honest enough and who served a big enough God that they could stand out beneath the stars with a fire crackling beside them and tell somebody, I'm just here to let you know, God let me down. Now, this is a really important piece of Scripture for you to understand because a lot of people read Scripture as if all these people were perfect, as if all these people were doing the thing we're supposed to do. And here's the thing. What she did is neither right nor wrong, It's just human. She was just human. And that idea that we all grieve differently applies to her as well. And she decided at her age, with her experience and her loss, to tell those girls across that campfire, I blame God. And it wasn't just a slip of the tongue. She made a career out of it. She traveled so far and so long blaming God that by the time she got back to Bethlehem, the women in town, the ones who would have known her most, didn't even recognize her person. Verse 19, same chapter. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, listen to this, is this Naomi? Who is this? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, And then she lets them know as well. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. I mean, at that point, during these times, people would have like taken 10, 15 paces away and looked up wondering if lightning was coming down. Like, you don't call out God like that. You are a fool. And she's like, no, no. (laughs) I'm somewhat wise. And I know my God. And he says he loves all of me. He says he accepts all of me. This is a big part of the bargain deal that most people don't realize they get when they decide to believe in something more than themselves. When I tell you, when the Bible tells you, when the Holy Spirit tells you God loves all of you, He not only loves the beautiful, polished, performing, platforming, placating part of you, he also loves the part of you that hates him when you think he lets you down. He loves the dark and the light. He loves everything. And you're supposed to bring your whole selves. These are the songs we sing. Bring your whole self to the cross. Bring your whole self to Jesus. But most people check their dark selves at the door, their shadow selves back there, and they just bring the songs and the smiles. And that's why when grief shows up in the midst of its mess and its ugliness, we don't bring the stuff that's checked at the door. We just sing and smile our way through it. This is not your whole self. There is no healing in that process. It is simply you saying, I'm strong enough to get myself through this tragedy because I would never blame my God. But inside, you wonder, like if he's as big as he says he is, why did he let that happen? 
he loves you as much as he says he loves you, why are you dealing with this right now? He knew what was going to happen, and yet it still happened. What kind of God is that? (laughs) No lightning. And as a believer, I believe these questions are important because they set us in a space a whole space where God can sit with us and our whole person. And here's the thing. He's not surprised by our questions. We're surprised by the fact he already knows about our questions. He's the one back there holding the bag, back of stage. When we go back there to finally get it, it's him like, going to bring it out now, huh? And it's so awkward and uncomfortable. But it's what real relationship is. This is how grief transforms you. It says that, that Naomi and Ruth start to build a small life. They have no family. They have no way of, of, of accomplishing or achieving anything. And so Naomi just stays in her grief, probably constantly reminding people to call her Mara. Hey, Naomi, Mara! Hey, Naomi, Mara, I said. Just an angry woman. I'm angry with God. She finally, she tells Ruth to go and glean, which is an idea to go to a field that's already been picked clean by the workers. So you have to go as a pauper. You have to go as somebody with nothing. And you go at night during the off-picking hours and you glean the field and therefore there's something left for you. And it says she goes and she gleans and then Ruth comes back and she's like, I noticed this man who was noticing me. Now Naomi is a somewhat wise woman. And she's like, tell me more about this man. She's like, well, his name was Boaz. And she's like, Boaz, really? And there's a backstory here. I'm going to let you read it because you need to study the Bible for yourself. I can't give you everything, but the idea, <laughs> I'll leave a little on the table, okay? The idea is that all of a sudden, Naomi starts to see something different in the wind. And she starts to feel this, this music that God start, starts to make from the broken instruments of her and Ruth's life. And so she actually gives some grandmotherly advice. She does what all good mother-in-laws do. She meddles. <laughs> now, during nine o'clock service, I just want to tell you something. That's when my mother-in-law watches. So during nine o'clock, I said, everybody but my mother-in-law. And that's when my father-in-law texted me on my iPad while I was preaching, said, nice recovery, Danny, with a thumbs up. <laughs> super awkward. I was like, like, super, super awkward, but, but she's not watching this service. So all mother-in-laws meddle, right? They care, and they're involved, right? They're involved. So she sends her back, and she gives her all these steps, right? All these steps to take with Boaz, and it's a beautiful romance that's really being, being uh, puppeteered by the wisdom, the somewhat wisdom of Naomi. She's like, do this, do this, lay at his feet, uncover his feet. I mean, she is playing the situation like a piano, And she sees God moving and some hope begins to stir within her. And next thing you know, Boaz and Ruth fall in love and they get married and Naomi finds herself in a place she never thought she would with hope. It's chapter four, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went to her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, those same women, She's always saying, Mara too. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter in law who loves you 
who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. His father, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David, who would be king. You see, this picture, this picture of the Redeemer, this picture is a picture of Jesus and what Jesus does when we allow grief to enter our story, when we are authentic with our whole person and all the things that we have experienced in life that we smile our way through or try to market our way through or try to pretend our way through. This Jesus is one who comes and is renowned. This Jesus is one who comes and is a restorer of life. He is a nourisher of your old age. He is a giver of blessing and purpose. But we have to decide as people, as humans, whether or not we are going to receive this Jesus and all it is that he wants to bring into our lives. Because this is where a lot of us, this is where a lot of us stop. We don't allow grief to move us in order to receive its blessing. We don't allow ourselves to move through it in order to experience its full uh, measure of, of purpose. We don't do what Naomi did. We don't sit at our campfires and be honest with people. We pretend our way through it or we numb it with, with pornography or alcohol or the next relationship or the next situation or the next drama. We do whatever we can not to feel the stuff that's happening in us because oftentimes someone around us is telling us that how we're doing it's wrong. So what does it matter if I do it wrong since I can't do it right in the first place? And we have no community to create space in to be authentic with how we're supposed to feel because we don't want to feel anything in the first place. This is why we're doing the series. This is why it's so very important to allow us to move through grief and receive its blessing. If I was to give you a word picture of what I hope this feels like versus what I think it often is. You remember uh, two weeks ago we did a baptism here, the very first baptism in our building that we've ever done. It was beautiful. It was amazing. Now, from the outside, if you were to imagine baptism as kind of symbolizing grief, from the outside, people getting into the pool, they look like everybody else. As a matter of fact, it's pretty romantic. It's pretty celebratory. People watch them. They get in. They hold hands with me. I pray with them. I take them under. I lift them up. Everybody applauds. People get out, dry off, and then go have a great baptism lunch. Every person's is the same. No one's is unique. And yet, from my perspective, what you don't realize is that baptism for many people is one of the bravest things they've ever done. See, to sign up is one thing, but to actually climb over the rails in front of a couple hundred people plus a thousand people online is kind of a big deal. Even the biggest men get into the pool, and when they grab hold of my hands, they start shaking, and I can see it in their eyes. Don't you say anything about this right now. <laughs> it's always the same. They're like, I swear to you, if you ever bring this up. But I already know. I've been doing this for a while. See, what they're proclaiming is something significant. I don't know if you've put this together. But when you're getting baptized, you are proclaiming all kinds of significant things in your life. You are proclaiming a need for cleansing. You are proclaiming uh, a need to be seen. You are proclaiming a proclamation that God is bigger than you, which means you are getting into a pool in a public setting and proclaiming to people that you're dirty. You're claiming to people that you've been hiding 
and you're proclaiming to people that you've been denying. And you are now standing in this pool, getting ready to walk out the process of baptism. I don't know if you know this, but baptism like grief is a process. Once you actually get out there and proclaim it and tell everybody, I'm getting baptized, I'm getting grief, I'm gonna grieve. It's a process you have to go through. If you just were to get into the pool up to your, you know, your waist and then be like, that was good, and start to get out, I would stop you. I'd be like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. We haven't completed the process. And if you were like, no, 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 this is as far as I want to be baptized. I, I'm good. <laughs> you would get out. The whole audience would know that guy didn't get baptized. You would try to get your baptism lunch, and your mama would be like, you ain't getting no lunch from me. You didn't walk out the process. The same is for grief. You can't just walk into grief, go to the funeral, read the book, and be like, did it. Going through a divorce, I'm good. She's terrible. Oh, yeah? I'm done. Life is good. Let's do it. That's not how it works. And yet at the same time, let me say there's another half. Some of you, you get into the pool, you're brave, you're courageous, you're up to here, and you're like, Danny, let's do this. You take me down, okay, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I can even barely hold on because you go under the water, all the way under, all the way to the bottom. And I'm like, here we go. And you're like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> you get into your grief so much that you're never good. People are like, how are you? I'm terrible. I told you that last Christmas. And it's like, but... But are you walking out the process? I am grieving. But I'm here to tell you, if you got in the waters to be baptized, went under and stayed under, you'd die. Like everybody around would slowly raise up from their seats like, what's happening? What's happening? <laughs> Where are they? Like what? And I'd be trying to get you up, but it looked like I was holding you down, which would be so unfair, right? I'd be like, it's not me. It's not me. <laughs> I'll be back. Like, I don't know. And some of you, we've kind of gone sideways here, but the word picture is tracking. Some of you, that's what you've done with friends. You've seen friends in grief that won't come up, and you swim down to them, and they're drowning you because they're not willing to walk out the process. You see, baptism is walking into the water, proclaiming you're afraid. Yes, you've been hiding, but now you're going to be found. Yes, you've been denying, but now you're going to proclaim. Yes, you've been dirty, but now you're going to be clean. And you're in the water, and you're with people, you're with others, and you go under, and they hold you, and you come up, and you proclaim to the world, I am moving through this process. It doesn't mean you're still not transforming. It doesn't mean that suddenly you are the epitome of who you're ever going to be. Baptism's not like that. It's a proclamation of transformation and a recognition that God has more for your story, and you know it. This is what it means to grieve. It means that God has more for your story and you know it and that you don't sit above the water telling everybody you get it and that you don't live below the water telling everybody there's no more of life left to be lived. It is about moving through the process and everybody does it different and everybody's at a different stage of it. This is what our God has for us. This is the story and the love and the beauty of how much he loves you. I'm going to show you what the faces of people who are willing to walk out that, that proclamation, that transformation look like. I want you to watch their faces. I want you to imagine it as grief. And I want you to consider 
engaging in your own process to see what God wants to do with your story. Please watch. God that I could ever articulate here in this moment right now. He has been with you every step of the way, whether you believed in him or not. Even if you leave this place doubting more than you showed up, he'll wait for you. He has incredible endurance. You'll never outrun him. He knows more about you and what's happened to you and what you've been lacking than even you do. He will continue to put people in your life to remind you of the wholeness that you are called to experience. He knows where you're numbing. He knows where you're lying. He knows where you're screaming. He knows when you're crying. He is and always will be for you. So why don't you take a chance just show him all the things he already sees. Show up week after week. Sit with the book. Read as far as you can before you start faking it. 
share with somebody things you've wondered about God. Share with Him. Go start a campfire in your backyard and sit beneath the stars and invite grumpy old Naomi, a somewhat wise woman. Sit with her. Imagine what she'd tell you about the loss you're experiencing. She'd say, you own that stuff. You be authentic with that stuff. You show up for friends like your God shows up for you. And you trust that he loves you more than you will ever know. This is what it means to make and share and eat tear soup. It's to create a space in this county for other people like you. And it's our job to go first. God loves you. I love you. And I'm so excited to be part of the story with you. I hope you come prepared every week for whatever it is you do to grieve. Amen. Amen. Will you stand? We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I am forever grateful for the way that you reach people in a room like this. I am inadequate to communicate in such a way that that every person and every story in this room can be touched, but you are not. May you awaken people to the ways they've been slumbering. May you allow them to ask bigger questions than themselves. May you remind them where they are searching and scratching. You are already there. May we seek the wholeness of a life well lived with you and for you. We receive all that you want to do inside of our lives and within this community. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks, guys, for coming. We'll see you next week.